Good morning. Well, the uh, ground checks for United Flight 232 were completed and cleared. 298 passengers were nestled into their seats, hearing the familiar speech about the exits and the, and the, and the uh, safety belts. Captain Al Haynes, a 35-year veteran pilot for United Airlines, was the one piloting the DC-10 that day, positioning for takeoff, a normal, a normal route, uh, layover in Chicago, final destination, Philadelphia. But minutes later, the plane took off. It leveled out at 37,000 feet. People were drinking coffee. The stewardesses were serving. People were reading. People were napping. And uh, then uh, exactly one hour, seven minutes after takeoff, according to some of the passengers, all hell broke loose. One of the, plane, one of the engines on the plane, the second engine on the plane, actually blew up. And the flight panel immediately responded, showing that the hydraulic system of this DC-10 had gone out. And uh, normally that wouldn't be a big concern. I mean, it'd be a concern, but not a huge concern because there's redundancy built into these hydraulic systems. There's normally three on a DC-10. Truth be told, over the entire plane, there's existed one area, four by four, four feet by four feet area, back by the tail section where where it was vulnerable, where there were all three hydraulic systems in the lines converged together, and it was located there. The odds of anything going wrong with all three of the systems was a billion to one. But on July 19th, 1989, the odds were against those aboard Flight 232, because at 3.09, the pilot and the crew experienced total hydraulic failure. All three systems went out. The ailerons, the rudders, the flaps, the elevators, Nothing functioned any longer. Controlling the plane became a nightmare. And so they radioed for help, and they got clearance to land in a very small airport in Sioux City, Iowa. And, the, of course, the, the landing strip was too small, wasn't equipped for a DC-10. And they were thinking to themselves, what do we do when we if we were even able to land because we don't have any brakes, we have no steering? They did what they could what they could do to fly the plane, and the only control they had over it was a little bit of steering to the right, and then using the, uh, the remaining engine that was there, they had thrusters in order to try and steer it towards the landing strip. Well, they got to the landing strip, and they began to do what they could to touch down, but the, the right wing hit first, and it began to cartwheel out of control, blew up in flames. But amazingly, 187 lives were saved and 111 people died. When the National Transportation Safety Board began to do their investigation, which they always do, it pointed to this fan disc in engine number two, which exploded, sending shrapnel through uh, into this four-foot area, vulnerable section in the plane that blew out the hydraulic lines of all three of the hydraulics. The investigation, though, it didn't stop there because the fan disc is very specialized. There's a massive paper trail leading backwards as to how it was created. And so they begin to do the research on it. What they found was that uh, this ingot of titanium that created the fan disk, there was something that had gone wrong in the forging of, of that piece of titanium. And when the parts for an airline jet like that are created, they're forged through molten titanium it's, of course, brought to a very extremely high heat, and then it exerted with 50, over 50,000 tons of pressure exerted on this, 
piece of molten titanium in order to forge it and bring about the part. It eradicates, by doing that, any trace of gas bubbles that might be trapped inside. But in this report, they found out that that actually didn't happen just right. And so there was some little pieces of nitrogen, particles of nitrogen, that had uh, created these, these little gaps, microscopic gaps that created uh, a weakness in that metal. And of course, it took 15,000 takeoffs and landings to cause it to fail. And of course, that formation process has everything to do with the safety. So what's the moral of the story? Flaws in the formative stages of our lives, of our family, even small ones, can lead to disaster later. How many times has, has this played out that way in our families? You know, we've all learned a new word in the last probably 40 years, the word dysfunctional. And uh, several of, most of us, I think, would say, yeah, we, I, I had that type of a background. Flawed parents act out of their own misguided conclusions and their inability to deal with emotion when raising their kids, right? And when those flaws are ignored or when they're just swept under the carpet uh, and, and, of course, the formation of character isn't there, what happens is a to toxic explosion of emotional shrapnel through the family that affects the kids. And what's even worse is that when it's not dealt with in the kids, it just carries on a cycle into the next generation and the one after that. Each generation adds one more link in a growing chain of pain that seems unbreakable unless someone recognizes there's a problem, unless someone stands in the gap, unless someone rises up and says, I'm going to do something different. It's hard to live for God in the context of a highly dysfunctional family. Well, we're going to study for the next six weeks uh, a kid who was raised in a very dysfunctional family and look at some of the outcomes of his life. And this kid that I'm talking about is Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament takes up a lot of real estate, Genesis 37 to chapter 50. It's a lot of, a lot of pages dedicated, a lot of chapters dedicated to his story. And what we're going to see is that Joseph through all of the dysfunction and all of the tragedy and all the difficulties in his life, instead of, instead of becoming a victim of it all, he became a victor. Now, I know talking about this, some of you have really, really kind of sordid pasts and you have dysfunction you come from and you're probably thinking, Mike, you don't know my family, how screwed up we are, how messed up we are. Because if you knew, you would know nobody competes with me. But I want to tell you, Joseph can compete. He really can. Before we get into his story, let me just give you a couple things. Joseph's story is the longest in Genesis, the longest narrative of a person who was walking with God. In the book of Genesis, there are eight main characters who illustrate how faith functions in relationship. And of course, Abraham is one of those, one of the most important of those, the father of our faith. Fourteen chapters dedicated to him and to Joseph but Joseph's narrative is actually 25% longer. So there's a lot written here. The Holy Spirit wants us to get something out of this. The life of Joseph is also the greatest and clearest picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Across the century, theologians have noted the parallels between Joseph and the life of Jesus. 
Biblical scholar Arthur Pink identified over 100 similarities between them both. Think with me for a moment, just a couple of those. They were both innocent. They both were chosen and beloved by their father. They both were sent by their fathers to see after their brothers. Both sold as slaves. Like Jesus, innocent Joseph cast between two criminals, pronouncing the salvation of one and the death of the other. Joseph forgave those who sought harm to him and ruin to him, as Jesus did. There's something remarkable, remarkable about Joseph that we want to learn, we want to get, the Holy Spirit wants us to understand, and we want it to point us to Jesus and learn from, from Christ himself. Joseph, as I said, was raised in an incredibly dysfunctional family. Lots of chaos, lots of issues. Your family has nothing on him, let me tell you. Let me, let me break it down for us. He had three stepmothers, 10 stepbrothers, one blood brother, a stepsister, of course, mom and dad as well, all living together under one roof. Can you imagine that? His father, Jacob, struggled with deceiving and being a liar and a cheat. His uncle Esau tried to kill Jacob, that's his dad, for identity theft. When the time came to marry, Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, tricks him into marrying Leah, the older sister of Jacob's true love, Rachel. So now, Jacob, Joseph's dad, has two wives and two concubines. Four women he's sleeping with, one that he loved. Long before Joseph is born, the, the family has issues. There's fracture. There's problems in its formation and in the forging of this family. Joseph is on this long cross-country trip as a kid. They're moving cross-country. And Rachel, his mother, ends up dying during childbirth of his youngest brother. So Joseph witnesses this birthing, this, 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 this pain and suffering of his mom who died, maybe even assisted in digging the grave. And then on this journey, he's a young boy. On this journey, his stepsister, Dinah, is raped by the mayor's son of a, of a town. And the guy's name is Shechem, who raped, raped her. And so Joseph's brothers couple of them end up deciding to kill the whole town out of revenge, the men in the town. And so that's what they do. Joseph witnesses this. He's a part of the hatching of this plan, and, and he didn't participate in it, but he was there. It affected him. I mean, all of this is going on. Of course, then his dad, of course, losing his one true love, Rachel, begins to shower Joseph with all of this misguided, misdirected love of his lost wife onto Joseph and starts to try to entitle him and give favoritism to him. And he loved him, the scripture says, more than any of the other kids. How do you think that went over? Jealousy, anger, hatred, resentment starts forming in all of the other kids targeted directly towards Joseph. There were trouble. There was problems. And we could go on. But you kind of get the point. He comes from this really messed up, messed up background, dysfunctional family. 
And he's 17 years old where we pick up the story in chapter 37. But he's, he, this is like Jerry Springer material here. You can't get it any better. Joseph was shaped by this upbringing, by these tragedies, by the dysfunction, and all these twisted dynamics that are in play. Something interesting, though, in all of that that you read as, you'll re- as we read through the story of Joseph is that you'll see and notice a resounding phrase that comes up over and over again, and that's this, but God. Joseph, every couple chapters, you'll notice that he says this, I can't interpret the dream for Pharaoh, but God can. I didn't ask to come to this city, but God brought me. I didn't get the promotion, but God gave it to me. I didn't ask for the pain in my life, but God is working through it. You intended to harm me, but God intended to save a whole nation. How do you look at the ups and the downs, the tragedies, the, the, the evil that maybe others have done to you in your life? What lens do you look at all of that through? What lens? How do you interpret the pain? How do you see people's evil actions? Where is God in all of that for you? Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this. Let's read it together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For good. What? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, Joseph understood that passage. wasn't written yet, but he had it in his heart that God was working all things together for good for Joseph, who loved God. Joseph's mantra, I think, was something along this lines. Sometimes life really sucks, but God is at work. God is at work. He's working all things together for good, even when I don't see it, when I don't feel it, God is at work, and he's a good God. And how we interpret our pain, how we interpret the dysfunction that has affected our lives, your life, has everything to do, whether you emerge feeling that of a victim or feeling that of a victor. If you have a Bible, open with me to Genesis chapter 37, where we will pick up uh, the beginnings of this story. As I said, Joseph being 17 years old. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. Jacob was Joseph's dad. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. In other words, lots of problems. Buttons being pushed, anger, hurt, jealousy. Joseph is 17. 
He was considered kind of the outsider of the family, the, the black sheep, because dad was giving him favoritism. Dad was pouring love on him that he wasn't giving to any of the other kids. Made him this ornate, beautiful coat of, of colors which represented his father's love and the authority that he wanted, wanted Joseph to have in the family. And so at every turn, Jacob was trying to promote him in everybody else's eyes, but it just kept backfiring. Everybody hated him all the more. We, we, we notice as well that Joseph, just as a 17-year-old, is going out and checking in on the various brothers who are older. They're working hard, manual labor, doing different things, caring for flocks. And Joseph is out there with like a little pocket notepad, you know, taking notes on him, going back to dad and giving a report. And the report wasn't good. Now, in business, you probably call this managing by walking around. In families, we call it tattletelling. And, and so the brothers did not like, every time he showed up in his coat and his little pocket pad, people were not happy. People hated him. Resentment built up and spilled over. And then, of course, he has the dream. And what's his dream? The dream that God gives him is that all of his brothers and his family, his mom and dad, are going to bow down and serve him. And out of great maturity of a 17-year-old, he shares the dream with them, probably as he's taking notes on their behavior that he'll bring back to dad. How do you think that went over? The scripture tells us they hated him all the more. See, everything is converging. Everything is setting up for a real tragedy to take place. Now, hey, who's at blame? Well, Jacob, the dad, poor leadership. You know, he's, he's, he's making lousy decisions as a father, as a parent. Brothers, they're, they're to blame. I mean, they've already proven themselves to, to be revengeful, to have hatred, to actually kill people. Joseph. He's acting his age. He's 17. His brain is not fully formed yet. Researchers tell us that a, a, a guy's brain doesn't form fully until they're 22. Some of you think maybe later, but hey, who knows? Who's to blame? Everyone's to blame. I mean, the whole dysfunctional, messed up family is in full blossom, and everybody's pushing each other's buttons. But God. But God is at work. But God is at work. He has a plan that goes beyond the immaturity of Joseph. It goes beyond the evil intentions of his brothers. It goes beyond the pain of this family. It goes beyond the poor leadership of his dad. It goes beyond all of it because God had a dream for Joseph. And God has a dream for you too. God has a dream for you. And his dream goes beyond your immaturity. His dream goes beyond the people that the enemy has used in your life to wound you and hurt you and abuse you. God's dream for your life goes beyond any authority figure, any poor leadership that's been exercised in your life by a parent, grandparent, or anybody else. God has a dream for your life. And the question we need to ask is, okay, if that's true, how do I step into that? How do I overcome the dysfunctions 
and the sins and all of the stuff? How do I not become a victim? How do I not replay the same thing that's been done to me, even though I don't want to, but how do I make sure that doesn't come out of my life, the stuff I saw growing up? And again, I'm not questioning the love of a parent for a child or the the love of a child towards a parent because we can love our highly dysfunctional parents, I mean, to the nth degree. But it doesn't change the fact that we have a lot of stuff that we've got to overcome. Well, first thing we learn from Joseph is he acknowledged God's sovereignty. We read that in Romans 8, 28, that no matter what happened to him, somehow, some way, he saw God at work. God didn't cause all of the stuff. He didn't cause all of the suffering or the pain or the evil intentions of the brothers, but God used it, and Joseph saw that. Joseph interpreted God in his story. Can you see God at work in your story? God at work in your past? God at work through pain? God at work through even the bad intentions of other people in your life? Joseph, in Genesis 50, ends up saying this at the end of his story. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's something about interpreting life through the lens of God at work that makes a huge difference in whether we become a victim or a victor. Another another thing we see in the life of Joseph is he took responsibility. Viktor Frankl, who was humiliated, tortured, and dehumanized in a Nazi prison camp, made tremendous discoveries that he recorded in a book. And one of the quotes that he said is, the last of all great human freedoms is to choose one's response to any given set of circumstances. He lived through the Nazi war camp, through the torture, seeing the death. And he came out realizing that I can choose some things. And one of the things that we have to take responsibility for is our responses towards life, our responses towards our upbringing, towards the dysfunction, towards the sin. And yes, we represented in this room are all kinds of stories of pain and hurt and dysfunction. Maybe your parents got a divorce when you were little, or, or maybe your father was an alcoholic, or you were abused by a relative. And I'm not, I'm not belittling or discounting those things. I'm just saying that don't let those things be a launching pad to send you into a victim's mentality, but like Joseph, Ask God, what might you want to do through this situation in me? How are you forging character? How are you changing me at the core? The other thing we see in the life of Joseph that really changed the way that he he looked at things is we've got to make up our mind to be the one to change the trajectory of our family. Have you done that? Have you made up your mind to be the one to stand in the gap and say it ends with me. All of the dysfunction, all of the sin, all of the stuff. You see, that's overwhelming, isn't it? That that feels like, oh no, that's out of my control. I would need like a billion years of therapy for that to happen. But I'm here to tell you that God, by his power, gives us the capacity as a Christian to stand in the forgiveness that he provides, 
in the identity that he's secured and the power to release cycles of sin off of our life, cycles of dysfunction out of our life. See, someone has to stand in the gap. Someone has to be the one in a family lineage to stand up and say, why not me? Why not me? Someone has to repent. Someone has to pray. Someone has to ask forgiveness, not only for their own sins, but the sins of all of their forefathers and all of the junk that goes behind it. Someone has to choose integrity. Someone has to say, I'm going to stand for moral purity. Someone has to become a Christian where it's not just a title, where it's an actual lifestyle every day. Someone has to break the sin of greed, the sin of of gossip, the sin of drug addiction? I mean, who's it going to be? Are you waiting for someone different, or will it be you? Will you let it start in you, through you? Why not me? Why not you? My uh, grandmother on my dad's side, Grandma Mead, was divorced and remarried seven times. My dad was raised by seven different guys coming in and out of his life. He was an only child. He was finally adopted by a guy by the name of Phil Mead. That's where I got my last name from. And uh, when he was a teenager, Phil was involved in the mafia. True. Grandma Mead was a lifetime alcoholic. I mean, she was a pretty loose, loose woman, wanted to kind of be a movie star, but never quite was, but dated all kinds of, of, of really interesting people. She supposedly was a Christian, my dad, of course, had his own issues. He left our family when I was 11 for a woman he met at work. He had multiple marriages. He struggled with various addictions. My mom's side had all kinds of issues with her parents and past. And Well, do you think I was exempt from that? No, I mean, I was right in the middle of that. I had all kinds of fears about marriage. I had all kinds of issues and addictions with porn and with drugs and with other kinds of stuff. It, it's just like... Who was going to break it? Who was going to get set free? I was 23 when I finally took responsibility for my, not just my own sin, but also just for this, this, this stuff in my rearview mirror, all the dysfunction of my family, that I was just waiting to walk it out. Even though I hated it, I resented it, I didn't want it, I knew it was probably just going to somehow play itself out in my life as well, unless God intervened. Thankfully, he did. God showed up, and God loved me. God forgave me. He died on the cross, and I realized that it was for me. He broke the power of sin and death over my life. He crushed the curse, and he broke the cycle of sin. I didn't have uh, to follow in the same dysfunction of my past, but as I humbled myself before God and just called out in desperation for his help, his power, I realized that he had something different for anybody who would just stand in the gap and pray in faith and walk out a new trajectory of life. And I'm here to tell you, God is real. The power of God is real. And I don't see a more miraculous display of his power than when he takes any one of us and he changes the trajectory and the direction of a life that was meant to go on a path of destruction and dysfunction and sin, and he changes it and empowers it to go in a whole new direction. 
where we build our houses on a solid rock, the word of God. And, and we're, we're set free. I love that. God blessed, and, and, and so before I was married, I mean, I was, I, I was petrified of a commitment of marriage. And now going on 29 years in August, I will have been married to the woman of my dreams that I'm more in love with today than I was the day I married her. And that's because of the grace of God. And I have great kids who love God, and I have grandkids, and they're learning to love God. And I'm not worthy of any of that. And I take no credit for any of it because I know better. It's only the grace of God, the compassion of our Heavenly Father that intervenes in any one of our lives and and says, I have a dream for you, and you can be different than what you see in your past. You can break free if you'll stand up and say, Lord, let it start in me. Let there be a new lineage, a new heritage that's given. I refuse to pass this stuff down to my kids and my grandkids. Will you stand in the gap? And do that. When you look at the life of Joseph, you can't help but see how God used trials. He used all of the stuff that was coming against him. The cards were stacked against him from birth. Just as the metal used for precision parts on aircraft undergoes tremendous pressure and heat to purify it and strengthen it, God uses trials in our life as Christians to change us, to purify, and to create character. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, he's saying, when Life gets hard when people come against you. When you experience the effects and the shrapnel of dysfunction, don't think, oh, poor me. Why not you? Why not me? Everybody around the world goes through suffering and has trials in their life. We often start to question the love of God. We start to question and doubt whether God is good if he would allow bad things to happen in my life. And the scripture says, don't think something strange is happening to you, that God has withdrawn his love. He hasn't. He's working in you. And he wants all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I realized this morning, there are, there are many of us struggling, struggling with the effects of dysfunction. Maybe a parent who should really lead the way in servant leadership and creating intimacy and relationship. And instead of doing that, they're, they're, they're being dumb. Instead of doing that, they're bringing hurt. They're laying guilt trips. They're saying things that leave lasting pain. They're showing favoritism. They're doing stuff that hurts. Or brother or sister who ought to just be the most dependable, confidential person in your life, and instead they're gossiping, they're lying about you, they're manipulating situations. See, dysfunction is no respecter of persons. It doesn't just show up in families. It can show up in our businesses where there's a really insecure, dysfunctional leader you're working for. Him. It can show up in a church where there's a real insecure pastor 
It can show up in our friendships. It can show up in a marriage. Some of you are struggling with your marriage, just struggling to love or respect your marriage partner. You're going through trials. And I'm not talking about the kind where we bring them on ourselves just out of our stupidity, but the kind that just come to you. You didn't ask for it. You didn't do anything. God wants us to begin to see that he's at work forming character. And don't think something unique or strange or you've been singled out in some unique way that no one else around the planet has had to experience. Because we go through stuff. So the choice is yours. The choice is mine. What will we believe about God? Will we be the one to stand in the gap and say, it stops with me? I'll take on responsibility. Even for the things that I didn't necessarily do, but they just happened through, through my lineage, I will stop it. I will repent of it. I will break the cycle of, of it. I will cut off the head of the snake, and I will allow God to flow his blessing through my life to affect generations to come. That can be you, friend. And you don't have to wait until you're a middle-aged person or an older person. Joseph started at 17. Maybe you're 17. You can start it right then. And even if you came from a healthy upbringing, don't, don't rely on that. Because every one of us have to stand in the gap and we have to walk humbly with God and repent of the things that come and, and pray for better things for our kids. Let me just close with this thought here that comes out of Deuteronomy 30. Moses used it in charging uh, the nation, the up, upcoming and, and forming nation of Israel. And as he laid out God's dream for the nation, he laid out this wonderful plan. And then he charged him with this. He said, this day I call heaven and earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice. Hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. What will you choose? Life or death? What will I choose? Victim or victor? See, there's a choice there. God provides the power. God provides the forgiveness. God provides the needed the supply of resource to break these things and to launch us into a new place. But we have to stand. and We have to say, Lord, let us start in me. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your goodness and grace. Lord, that you are always at work, even through the stuff that hits our life that we didn't ask for, we don't deserve. The people that have evil intentions, the tragedies that we walked into, Lord, you are at work and you love us. And I, I just want to encourage you this morning. If God has been speaking to you and you're ready to be that one that stands in the gap and says, it's going to stop with me. I want to ask you to just lift your hand up to God right now, if that's you. It's going to stop with me. I'm going to stand in the gap. This stuff is not going to get passed down further. God is giving me faith right now to be the one to do that. Thank you. Good, good, good. Yes. Be bold. Yes. Thank you, thank you, 
Lord, you see these hands, Lord. You know the responses of these hearts, Lord. And God, I thank you that this is not just vain promise and just rhetoric. This is reality, God, that you give us power beyond ourselves, beyond therapy, beyond counseling. God, you give us a power that's birthed of the Holy Spirit that comes by way of the cross that we can stand in the gap and break down sin and break down cycles and break down dysfunction. And sometimes you use counselors. Sometimes you use people. And sometimes you just do things miraculously, Lord. And we just embrace it all and say, God, let us stop with me. And I'm believing for your dream to be released in my life and in my family's life and in the lineage that will come after me. Lord, I'm believing for your goodness, your good promises are yes and amen. I'm asking for that. I'm trusting in that. You'll give me wisdom every step of the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a a good word, isn't it? Isn't that a good and encouraging word? I love the idea that, uh, that when it comes to kind of my dysfunction and the things that are wrong, that God has more for me in store than maybe just for me to endure and to struggle through and just to last and to kind of collapse in a heap at the end line, but but that God might want to actually work in the middle of that and use me and transform me and use me to break a chain of things and start a new chain of things going right, that is a great thought and one that I think God will continue to remind us of throughout this week. I did mention to you earlier that there were some changes, and here comes another one. So if you're not a big change person, you're going to have to roll with this. Most of us are kind of conditioned that we, that we sing a song at the end and leave, and you're going to freak out in just a moment because I'm going to ask you to leave without a song. And if you need to stay and maybe start your own song, you can do that too as well, but that's on you. Okay, but before we do, um, I want to ask you to do something, get ready to receive a charge that I'm going to give you. So if everyone would go ahead and stand. And I want to offer you this charge, that this week, as you head out uh, from this place into the life that you lead, that you would keep your eyes uh, open and your spirit ready to embrace what it is that God is doing. To take um, the dysfunction that you find in the various places that you live, whether that's at home or at work or at school or wherever it goes, to take the redeeming love of God with you into those places and to be the people that God calls to use to redeem even that dysfunction in the very places that we live. Let's do that together, and let's do it with boldness. Let's have a great week, uh, and then we'll see you Friday night at the service station for Dylan's release party. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.